five games. It's pretty tough to pick just five games that speak to who I am as a game player. Hi, everyone. I'm Suzanne Sheldon, and I'm thrilled to be a guest curator on this episode of The Five By because I've been a huge fan of this show since episode one. But the contributors have covered so many wonderful games over the years. It was a challenge to narrow it down, but I've done my best. So the five Five By games that speak to my gaming heart are number nine, which speaks to my love of polyominoes and simple but challenging abstract games, Targi for the wonder of clever mechanisms and two-player games, One Deck Dungeon with its rattling dice, touch of luck, and solo play, Fields of Arl to satisfy that hunger for meaty games, and of course, Uva Rosenberg Designs, and finally, Quinto, because no Suzanne list is complete without at least one roll and write game, and Quinto encapsulates the heart of the format beautifully. I hope you enjoy this episode. Tis the season for holiday travel, gathering with friends and family, and you know, being that one person who brings the bag of games everywhere you go. My game bag usually consists of new party games that came out in the past year, ones that do well with large groups and are easy to jump into, as well as puzzly smaller games that travel easily. One such game I often travel with is number 9, which was previously covered by Catherine in episode 17. Number 9, released in 2017 by Abacus Spiel and Z-Man Games, is designed by Peter Wickman. In this game, you're stacking cardboard numbers on top of each other to score them at the end of the game. Each number is multiplied by which level it's sitting on. What sounds deceptively easy can sometimes be an excruciating 20-minute brain burner, and I mean that in the best possible way. Number 9 has few rules. The game comes with a deck of cards, which contains the numbers 0 to 9 twice. There are large cardboard bits, again the numbers 0 to 9, and each player gets two of each number. The cardboard numbers are geometrically shaped, with gridded lines on it, to make it easy to ensure your numbers are lining up correctly. Because this matters as you start building up, the deck is shuffled and one card is flipped over. You can place this new number side by side next to another one, like puzzle pieces fitting together. If you decide to level up and place this new number on a high level, that number must be sitting on at least two numbers and not have any gaps underneath it. This makes it tricky to place numbers on top of numbers with loops on them. Numbers such as zeros, sixes, eights, and nines. And you can't place the same number on top of itself. Gameplay continues until the entire deck runs out and everyone has placed their zero to nine twice. But as you start building out your number tableau, you'll quickly learn that some numbers fit well together, but that most do not. And you'll have to make tough choices of when to start building up and whether that perfect number you're waiting for will come up in the deck sooner than later so that you can maximize its scoring. And while scoring can be a little complicated, what I tell people is to keep their numbers together based on its level and multiply the points that way. The level touching the table is the zero level, so all those numbers don't score any points. If your fives and nines are on the next level, then each number scores itself. If you manage to get, for example, twos and eights onto that next level, then each two is worth four points and each eight is worth 16 points. The bottom level is mostly for creating a solid base for which you can place higher value numbers on top of, should the cards come out in your favor. I particularly love the spatial aspect of this game, even though I'm horrible at it. 
And it's neat to see that even though we're all working with the same exact deck and order of numbers, how everyone's path will diverge with their number placement. There's no interaction among the players in number 9, just a good 20 minutes of everyone staring intently at their beautiful creation or their numerical disaster. Another bonus for number 9 is that it's super portable. I usually just grab the cardboard bits and cards and plop them into a Ziploc bag when I'm traveling, or if you don't mind traveling with a box, you can cut the inserts in half so that you can actually squeeze in two sets in the box. The more the merrier. You technically could play with an infinite number of players should you acquire extra copies of this game. Number 9 is a fun, quick, short, puzzly game that's easy to teach and equally simple for folks to jump into, and a game that most folks would love to play immediately again so that they can right the wrongs from the first game, because there's going to be a lot of wrongs. The game isn't color-dependent or language-dependent because all you're focusing on is numbers. It's a game that you can pretty much play anywhere, and one that puzzle lovers will enjoy. And that's number 9. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, fresh from a day playing a lot of new Essen releases and ready to talk about a game that, well, isn't. First published in 2012, Targi was one of the first specifically two-player games to capture my attention. Previously, I'd preferred looking into games with more versatility in terms of player count, but this clever worker placement game won me over and had me looking for a copy of my own except I couldn't find one. The game was actually hard to find for years, and in the end, the copy I actually got was purchased in Rome and thus wasn't in English, something of a problem when there's text-heavy cards. Thankfully, however, the game has recently received a new English-language print run and is showing up on store shelves once more, finally giving me a copy I can actually read. Designed by Andreas Steger, Targi is part of the Cosmos two-player line. Players take on the role of tribal leaders in the Saharan desert, collecting and trading goods to eventually expand their group's home. After laying out the framework of cards representing potential actions, players will fill the center of the frame with a mixture of goods cards and tribe cards, representing both periodic caravans they can interact with and the improvements available to add to their tribal tableau. During each round of the game, they'll be placing three meeples on the outer cards, followed by placing markers at the intersections of the rows and columns in which their meeples were placed. This means that each player ends up with either four or five things to resolve from their three placements, the standard actions in which they put their meeples in the first place, along with up to two cards from the center. Once resolution's taken place, players refill the center card tableau, move the red marker to a new space on the outer frame, and start over. The use of intersections in the worker placement gives an extra aspect to all of your decisions, and the restriction that you cannot place opposite an opponent's meeple helps make this two-player game feel like a more multiplayer experience, since even if your opponent didn't take the space you want, it might still end up being off-limits to you. The round marker itself also blocks an action space each turn, because their path is set, you can plan ahead for this blocking, but that doesn't mean it won't constantly get in your way. And speaking of planning ahead, when that round marker reaches the corners of the frame, your tribe is going to be raided and must give up a number of trade goods. Plan poorly, and you might end up losing points instead when the robbers show up.
Throughout a game of Targi, players can convert goods into points at the silversmith, but the vast majority of their points will come at the end of the game from their displayed tribe cards. Each card has a cost that must be played to display it, and will provide endgame points, along with potentially more endgame scoring depending on what they've collected, or a special ability that lasts the rest of the game. These abilities include things like discounts on certain types of cards, or even the ability to mitigate those raids. Each tribe card also belongs to one of five categories, which is represented represented by the art on their left-hand side. They represent things like wells and camps and so on, things you want in your tribal home. The displayed cards are placed in up to three rows of four symbols that have to be filled left to right, and you can get extra points at the end of the game if you have a row where all the symbols match or where all four types are different. This adds an extra layer to choosing your cards. If the ability is good, but that camp symbol that's on it is going to mess up your bonus, well, you're going to have to make a tough decision. And since you can only hold a single card in your hand for later, and you'd have to use an action to either discard or play it, well you'd better be sure that at least most of the time you can pay for everything you've placed your markers on. Targi comes in the standard Cosmos two-player box, and everything in there is just cards or punchboard tokens along with a few meeples. The cards do have a tendency to curve a bit, it's not too bad, but be aware when you're shuffling. I wouldn't recommend sleeving the cards as you'll end up with a terrible glare issue when you lay everything out. The tokens themselves are fine, even if everyone I've played with refers to the dates as baked beans. But since they're all the same shape, I'm planning on replacing them with wooden or resin bits, purely to make distinguishing the types easier from across the table. But the art is distinct enough that this is more of a want for a game I love as opposed to a necessity for play. Targi is a bit of a table hog with all the cards and personal tableaus, and the whole thing does end up being, well, rather beige. But I'm oddly fond of the overall look, and the tribe card art from Franz Vowinkel is itself not only quite nice but provides some spots of bright color. Now be aware, not only is Targi beige, but it's about as dry as the desert in which it's set. There's not a lot of juicy theme going on, and player interaction is simply blocking other people's meeples. Which does happen a lot, and causes a lot of swearing in our games. But yes, this is a game about getting things to turn into other things to pay for cards. And as such, this game is not for everyone. But if you like that type of game, and you play two-player games, Targi gives you a quick playing but still very meaty experience in about an hour. I'm so happy it's finally easy to get a hold off again, and for a reasonable price, since more people will get a chance to explore this two-player gem for the first time. And if you're one of those people, please let me know how it goes. You can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or more frequently on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Initially heard of One Deck Dungeon during the kerfluffle over their first Kickstarter. As a group of dead-enders complained that the all-female and inclusive character deck was pushing the social justice warrior agenda too far. And if there's one thing guaranteed to pique my interest, it's pushing the social justice warrior agenda. So I backed the game on the spot. The play looked interesting, but the fantastic art by Will Pitzer really sealed the deal. And then, shortly after receiving my copy, I heard Esmati Games was kickstarting a sequel with an updated rulebook. Well, I backed that too, despite not playing the first game. Knowing that an updated rulebook and a playmat was coming was enough for me to wait, and I'm glad I did. In one deck dungeon Forest of Shadows, you are dungeon diving either solo or with a friend. Each player chooses their character class, Alchemist, Hunter, Druid, Slayer, Warden, or Kaliana, and then picks the appropriate side for one or two players. 
Each character is slightly different in what dice they can roll for encounters. It's a minor difference, but can really affect how well you do in certain dungeons or against certain encounters. For a more basic D&D style understanding, these are your stats. But in addition to different stats, each character has a feat that they can perform at the start of each encounter and a skill that they can use. These are what really sets the characters apart, as their abilities are used pretty much every turn. To proceed with the game, you choose the dungeon you wish to explore. Dungeons are rated easy, medium, and hard. You literally have one deck of cards that is the dungeon you are exploring. You lay out four doors and then flip the doors one at a time and either deal with the encounter or run away. Exploring and opening doors costs time, which is handled through flipping cards from the draw deck into the discard. So even though you'll eventually learn most every card in the deck, you'll never know which ones you'll face, as many are discarded as time. If you choose to face an encounter, then you roll the dice your character has symbols for and use them to fill the boxes both on the dungeon levels and for the encounter. It honestly took me a little to understand the system, but once I got it, I thought it was pretty brilliant in how straightforward it is. It is very easy to see what encounters you stand a chance at surviving, and which you should run away from. There's no penalty for running away other than you have wasted two time, and I suppose eventually you could lock up your whole dungeon with encounters that you can't handle, as you can never have more than four cards in front of you at any time. But strategically, it's sometimes a wise choice to put off an encounter until later. If you choose to face an encounter, then you roll the dice and use your abilities and available potions to manipulate them to best fill all the boxes. If you can't fill them all in, that's okay. You'll just have some penalties like extra time spent, poison, or wounds. Assuming you don't meet or exceed your allowed wound total, you always win every encounter on the very first round. Often, I'll go into an encounter knowing I won't fill all the boxes if I think the reward is worth it. If you survive, you take the encounter card and use it to improve your character by increasing the number of dice they can roll, giving them a new skill, a new potion, or using the points for experience to work on reaching the next level. Leveling is useful as it gives you the option to have additional items and skills, but I rarely level up before I've maxed out my items and skills for my current level. Once you reach the end of the deck, you descend to the next level of the dungeon. To make the next level more difficult, on each encounter you will not only have to fill in the boxes for the dungeon level you are currently on, but for each previous level as well. You should really level up your character at least one level before descending to the next dungeon. At least, that's my goal. If you have survived the third level, you now face the big boss monster of this dungeon, who is conveniently on the back of the dungeon level card. The boss fight is the only fight that takes multiple rounds, but the combat is mostly the same. If you win, you have successfully completed the dungeon. If not, well, you get to try that dungeon again. But either way, you get the points you've earned and you can apply them to a campaign mode to unlock new abilities for that character. I played a campaign with two characters, and to do it you have to enjoy the grind, as without a through story it can get a little repetitive but you'll need to do it to get enough abilities to really stand a chance at the harder dungeons. So, I played one deck dungeon at two-player with my six-year-old son, and he has really enjoyed it. I feel the game is a bit easier at two-player because between the characters you can reach a better balance of available dice to roll, and two characters get more items and skills between them than one character does. Though it does also take more cards out of the deck, so subsequent dungeon levels are reached faster. There is an option for four-player if you own two decks, but without an easy way to split the decks again, I don't think I would personally try this. Having gotten the hang of One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows, I've gone back and played the basic One Deck Dungeon, and while I enjoy it, I think Forest of Shadows is a little bit better, but maybe that's just in my head, as that's the first one I played. Either way, I'm certainly glad that I took a chance on this game. I may be a Eurogamer, but I've always liked the idea of a quick and fun dungeon dive without all the overhead of something like Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, which I also like, but I'm much more likely to break out One Deck Dungeon for a quick solo game. 
Anyway, that's One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows, a game I like so much I'm going to give away a copy to a lucky listener. All you have to do is tweet at 5bygames or reply to the episode post on Facebook. Tell me what your favorite character class is from either the original One Deck Dungeon or from Forest of Shadows, and I'll pick one entry at random and mail a copy of One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows with a playmat to the winner, wherever they live in the world. Good luck, and one entry per person, please. If you'd like to discuss One Deck Dungeon further, you're more than welcome to reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. My extended family has a cottage on a lake built in the 1920s by my great-grandfather. It is steeped in nostalgia, from playing board games at the dining room table with my third cousins to helping my dad rebuild the front deck, where my job was to stand on each board and think heavy thoughts. Every stone and root in the path down to the lake I remember, and hours spent on the dock and diving into the lake to play in the water with my sister, are possibly the favorite memories of my life. If I created a board game about my cottage, it would probably be a similar experience to what creating Fields of Alls means to game designer Uva Rosenberg. Fields of Alls is steeped in the history of the Rosenberg family, and in this game you will get a taste of what life in East Frisia meant for the people living there. Uva Rosenberg is arguably the single most important designer in my gaming life. He has created many, many fantastic games. Uva is the master of the farming game genre and Fields of Alls is a lovely, unique addition to the genre. In Fields of Alls, similar to Agricola, the goal is to build the most successful farm. You will get points for many of the things you build, animals you breed, and resources you collect. You have four members of your family that will take an action in each summer and winter season. At the end of November and March, you will return your workers to the next season, and you will take care of them while reaping the benefits of what you have built. The summer season is really about going out and collecting resources, constructing buildings, and the outdoor work of improving your farm. At the end of the season, you harvest your crops, have all the peat dried and put away to warm you over the winter, and you can't forget to feed your people. The winter season is much more about indoor work, building carts, pottery, and baking. At the end of winter, your animals have babies, you shear your sheeples, and you will again need to have saved grain or food to feed your people. There are a massive number of worker placement spaces for your family to go to work. Some are only available in the summer, and others are only available in the winter. Each action that you take is a specific and thematic slice of East Frisian life. I love taking my old horse down to cut peat from the bog, but I bristle at butchering my farm animals for their tanned hides. Many of the worker placement spaces rely on a skill level to determine your success at a specific placement location. At the beginning of the game, You start with little skill, and this will impact many of the options you take. You can place a worker at the workshop to increase your skill and improve actions, which costs resources to upgrade. But ignore that option at your peril, as many of your other actions rely on skill level to perform efficiently. Each player gets a lighthouse, representing start player for a specific season. Each round, one player can take one action in the opposite season, if in winter they can take a summer action, for instance. The consequence of this is that they give up first player in that opposite season. So if you're first player in winter, you can take that summer action without consequence. But if you are the summer start player and you take a summer action in winter, you give up your first place marker and get the winter lighthouse token. This creates opportunities for a change in turn order that is unique and interesting at two players. Your farm starts mostly as untouched peat bog and water. The dike system in place doesn't give you a lot of room to farm. 
You have no carts or boats of any kind. As the game progresses, you will push those dikes out and harvest peat from your bogs, opening up more space to raise animals, build vehicles, grow crops, or construct buildings. There is a giant pile of buildings to build that provide victory points, one-time special abilities, and some ongoing benefits, but have costs relative to their benefits requiring specialization in the myriad options available. Your family has a barn which you can fill with a variety of vehicles, plows, peat boats, and carts of all sizes. A big part of your engine is using these carts to visit neighboring towns, selling goods at market for food, and sending resources to get processed and upgraded. The expansion to Fields of Alls, Tea and Trade, adds a third player, the tea resource, and two types of boats which can be used for fishing or trade. As a person who loves tea, even growing tea plants in the yard to harvest each spring, I adore the additions that this expansion brings. At the end of the game, you will fill out a point sheet that will add up and compare all you've done. For us, the score doesn't matter because what you built and the story it tells is the important lesson in Fields of Alls. Uva has created a masterpiece for two players, a game that really resonates with my husband Sam and I, as the majority of our plays are with two. Gaming with a significant other is a particular passion for me. I enjoy communicating with others who game the same way on BGG, using the A Couple of Gamers Guild. If you play games with your significant other, join and let us know what your favorite game to play with just two is. Until next time, you can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. May all your gaming bring you joy. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Quinto. Hobby gaming sometimes seems like an endless miasma of which edition is this? And no, the French version has different rules. And yeah, but that's actually a reworked version of a Kinesia card game from 97, but with a different bidding system. There are lots of games with similar titles, games that are sequels or reissues with indistinct titles, games with the exact same titles that have nothing to do with each other, Games with the same titles save for the newer games edition of an exclamation mark, and games with purposefully unique spellings of titles in a publisher's attempt to disambiguate and distinguish, which mostly results in more confusion and makes them difficult to Google. Quinto, Q-W-I-N-T-O, published by Nuremberger Spielkarten Verlag in 2015, is a tight little roll-and-write game, not to be confused with any of the three other games called Quinto, Q-U-I-N-T-O. One of those is forgettable and probably junk, one is a forgotten 90s Sid Saxon card game with publisher butchered rules, and one is the magnificent 1964 3 and bookshelf title that's basically just math scrabble. Highly recommend that one, uh, one of my favorite 3M games. Roll and write games, and I prefer the term pencil games, have hotted up in the last three years to the degree that I'm largely bored by the announcement of new ones, especially very complex ones. I think that speaks to a larger personal problem I have. The more someone tells me I should like something, the more I want to hate it. Probably correlated to my low-level oppositional defiance, but, you know, who knows. I do still love a clean, simple pencil game that gives me choices, but doesn't ask me to remember a complex rule set or scoring system. Quix, available pretty much everywhere, is a great example of this kind of direct and easily teachable pencil game. Quinto borrows some ideas from Quix, they are both from the same publisher, but for us, Quinto does it better, so let's get into why. Quinto is three dice and a piece of paper. You're rolling the dice and choosing to put the summed rolls in one of three rows, red, yellow, or blue. If you roll the red and blue dice together, you can put the sum in a spot on the red or blue lines. If you roll all three, you can put the sum on any lines. Numbers have to run ascending left to right, and the game is over when you fill two lines. You won't. Or crap out by not being able to place four of your rolls. This is how the game is going to end. There's not a lot of emergence in Quinto, and for once I think that's actually a good thing. Everyone has the same information and most of the same opportunities. On your turn, you must write down the sum of your rolls. On everyone else's turn, you have the choice to write down their roll. 
Now, in a roundabout way, especially for a dice game, it's almost perfect information. You're free to look at other people's score sheets, though we choose not to, and all players have access to every roll, provided they've made good choices and have space available on their sheets. I do think there's a slight learning curve to Quinto. You have to choose every turn which combination of dice to roll, and those early rolls are often critical in setting up and spacing out your scoring opportunities. At the end of the game, you get points for each number you filled in, and extra points if you filled the line completely. You also score for key columns completed in addition to the rows. There are a couple of different paths to points in Quinto, and players who excel at order and planning should do fairly well. I like that Quinto is a dice rolling game that's not particularly exciting. Now, it's fun and challenging and easy to pick up and play, but it doesn't really require a ton of emotional energy. It's often our go-to game when we just can't think of anything else to play. Because it's quick and very rules-light and still actively engages your mind, we found it to be a great stress reliever. In Quinto, Bernard Locke and Uwe Rapp have designed a game that seems so simple that it feels like it's not designed, which for me is usually a sign of a good game. I've played a lot, and I mean a lot, of amateur-designed pencil games, and far too often they're filled with extensive dice mitigation options. Quinto is short enough that I don't want reroll or plus one options to use. I've not kept many of the more complex pencil games we've tried, partially because they often overstay their welcome, have too many extra components, or just pack so much into a small sheet that it ruins everything I like about the genre. I really thought I wanted medium-weight, Euro-style pencil games, but apparently I was wrong. I'm sure other people love them, but they've all just left me largely indifferent. Quinto shines in a space that lets me use my higher functions for choice and light strategy instead of just trying to remember a bunch of rules. Quinto has recently become available in the U.S. from Pandasaurus, and is widely sold for between $10 and $15. It comes in a little box, and the sheets aren't very large, so we mostly play with laminated copies of the custom-made score sheets posted on BoardGameGeek. You could, of course, just laminate the sheets that come in it, but I prefer printing on cardstock before laminating, as it tends to wrinkle less and hold up a little longer. So, who should play Quinto? People who like Quicks. People who like Sudoku, which I suppose are both just people who like putting numbers in order and people who like casual games to share with coworkers in the break room, family at the holidays, and strangers in places that Twilight Imperium or Age of Steam just won't fit. I give Quinto three out of three primary colored dice that might be a slight problem in low light for our color vision impaired listeners that I forgot to mention until just now, but that I think are probably okay in most normal lighting situations. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Thanks for listening to The 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5 If you like what you hear on The 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 by Games. Thank you. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.